HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meet and 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating Black culture through the complicated lens of agriculture. We speak to Carla Hall about her uncompromising soul food recipes. And I was like, what am I doing? Why am I changing my family's history for another culture? We also hear from Gabriela Rodriguez at Harlem Grown's Youth Farm Uptown. About empowerment and, you know, community resilience building through this work. Um, Food is kind of just a vehicle. Leah Penniman addresses feeling like an outsider in the farming community. I could count on my two hands the number of of people who appeared to be POC, people of color. Mm -hmm. And so I literally would go around little slips of paper and and say, hey, meet at one o'clock under this tree so we can talk. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly, on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview extraordinary, an extraordinary person on their journey to success. Today, my guest is someone who was in the hospitality world for 30 years before she entered another world, that of being a psychic, a medical intuitive, and medium. Welcome, Heather Carlucci. Thanks so much for having me. I am so excited to have you here. <laughs> I mean, there are so many reasons. First of all, we really do go way, way, way back. We do. Right. We do, so, yeah. and actually, I was talking to um, Danny Meyer yesterday, and he remembers that you cooked with uh, Tom Clicchio and Mondrian. Oh, yeah. I, I was with Tom at Mondrian, and then um, I was assistant pastry sous. No, it was pastry sous. And then Danny hired me as the second pastry chef ever at Union Square Cafe. So, so he says hello. <laughs> and Hi, I was Danny. thinking, oh, my goodness, your life in the pastry world was so important and interesting and compelling. How did you end up doing pastry? Well, thank you, first of all. Um, I was an art student for about four minutes. And realized that art school was not for me. School in general was not a good match for me. And I went into culinary school to get out of college as an excuse to my parents. I went into restaurant management and in about and at this one school, which was the restaurant school in Philadelphia, and it was so small that they taught you everything. Every single major, which was, you know, culinary, restaurant management, and pastry was about to start. You had to learn everything from wines to service to whatever. And one chef said to me, you know, you should really go into pastry because you're so artistic. And, <laughs> and I, I was go, like, thank you for the compliment. Okay. <laughs> At this point, I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah, that's how I went to pastry. And did you find pastry fulfilled an artistic dream? Yes, it very much, it very, very much did for a very long time. Um, in that time, they did have a trip to France. Um, and back then, I think tuition was $1,500, including the trip to France. I know, which just kills me, especially for all that they included with the curriculum. And I felt so madly in love with the theater of it and the history of it and just everything about it. I just adored it. Because I, I think you were saying that school wasn't your thing. No. And so what was the distinction between working so hard in pastry 
and school, which you went to lots of schools and got kicked out of a bunch of schools. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up. My yeah. mother's going to love that. Um, <laughs> um, you've come so far, which is the great part. Yeah, well, I couldn't sit in a classroom. And for me, especially at this small school, they wanted everything hands-on all the time. So if you were going to learn wine, they wanted you to actually help run the wine program in their you know, little restaurant, right, that would train the students. And I was up and moving all the time. And I was also creating with my hands all the time. And I realized that that was my best way to learn. And now that is something that's really accepted. Like, there's different learners. Back then, they're probably like... No, right. There was no... I, I'm <laughs> I'm so happy when I see other, like, children, and they're like, oh, they just learn differently. And I was like, I just learn differently. <laughs> Nobody was paying attention. But I'm really happy that I figured that out about myself, and I, those children can sort of go on <laughs> to actually work. Yeah. So after all that that time in pastry, I remember that you started your own restaurant, Lassie. I did, yeah, an Indian and, restaurant, <laughs> and which was which was Indian. And I remember at the time thinking, "Oh my gosh, a pastry chef who became an Indian cook! Like, how does that happen?" And now, of course, people cross boundaries all the time. But I feel like that was a bold move back then. And I'm wondering now that you've become a medium, mm-hmm. whether the influence of the Indian philosophy is part part of what has drew you to creating that kind of food? Um, no. <laughs> Actually, um, no. When I fell in love with Indian food, it was very much in the cook sense, like a true kitchen. I was a, such a kitchen person. I still am. And it was, I fell in love with a dish and my student, I was at ICE. And uh, and what she was doing that actually when I originally opened it up, I wanted her to be the chef. That's she didn't so have, interesting. She didn't have her her residency here. Her and her husband were living here illegally. And I was like, you're amazing. Let's open up. And then just because of family issues and cultural things, the day before we're about to open the door, she walked. Um, and I went home and my husband at the time said to me, well, I was like, what do I do? And he was also a chef. He is a chef. And he said, he just said, well, you're a chef. Cook. And I went in the next day and really early, and I taught myself the three curries that she did best. I didn't want her recipes, but I wanted to grasp what this was. And I figured... Especially back then, we didn't we didn't look at Indian as this trend yet. You know, these Indian chefs were not being given any. So I didn't, you know, other than going to Sixth Street growing up, right? I didn't Sixth have Street, which in New York City is they say that there's <laughs> there's just a line of curry that's out the back and everybody serves the same thing, which is right. not true anymore. But back in the at day. one time, they were connected in the back, and um, so I I just. I really was like, you know what? It's got to be the same as anything else. Because everyone's like, oh, I had this stigma, like so many ingredients. And I was like, there's heat, there's there's spa- spices, right? There's salt, there, and there are the ingredients. And then there's like layering of flavors. And, and within two days, we opened up with just like five curries, seven parattas, seven lassies, and that was it. Okay, how mad were you? Like, how did you get over what seems like quite a, um, you know, I mean, really disappointing on the part of someone who you had mentored and really wanted to help I, you know, move forward? I, I was, I was angry, and I wasn't angry because there's no way something like that happens that you don't really subconsciously know that something's brewing, something's uncomfortable. And you hope for the best. And of course, this was a very big cultural thing. You know, this was, you know, her going to work, that was a big deal. Um, And also, I was very much, you know, I have the privilege of being able to, you know, pick up the phone and call somebody like you, who we've worked with for years in PR and be like, guess what I'm doing? Come on in and put her name in it. And that was a very, that was a big thing to push. Um, looking back on it, I mean, I, I think, I don't, I'm not in touch with her. I thank her all the time in my head because, I, you know, I did something kind of ridiculous in a way. I, you know, I, I went from the time I tasted that one dish, I opened Lussie maybe 10 months later. Wow. It was just so one fast. of those things where like it just happened and I was like, what am I doing? I have no idea. Um, and really, I, I kept it. I, I just I was nervous for the cultural aspect of it. I wanted to keep it. I wanted home style cooking. I didn't want anything. I didn't want to be known as fusion. Um, the only thing I did change, and it was just because one of my 
big followers in pastry was actually this one young Indian man who just had a thing for my chocolate soup at Limpero. And he said, <laughs> would you just do your desserts instead of, so I would do like chocolate pudding and, you know, and rice pudding and things that kind of went with the food, but didn't. That was the only thing I really sort of crossed boundaries on. <laughs> that seems like a very interesting way to end a, a meal of curry. Yeah. Chocolate pudding, <laughs> chocolate of pudding. course. Nobody complains. <laughs> and in the end, did you love doing that restaurant that was sort of... Oh, it is my. It is the gift that keeps on giving. That restaurant, more than any, I put my heart and soul into it. I learned things about my own creativity. I, well, I let's st- pause there. What did you learn? Because I feel like you learn resilience. Your husband says, just get up and cook. And you're like, yeah, I could do that. Well, um, there was no other option. Yeah. You know, like he was really being very, you know, it's like, well, you know what? Just keep going because... I learned about, you know, you can run restaurants for other people your whole life until it is truly yours. And I don't care who you are and what you manage, you do not understand what goes into it. And because you still see other things differently and you still, it's, an, you know, it, you take it upon yourself, right? You really wear it. You know, it's a lot to let go of. And of course, being an entrepreneur changed everything as well you're in a different club all of a sudden of the other people who are like it is hard and there's a lot of no's and you're you know you're struggling um there's so many things here let's just talk about the the creativity okay what, what creativity did you find in doing a restaurant that you hadn't experienced in doing pastry um well I learned that my eye for design you know, just being in the restaurant business at that point, I was 20 years in. So I realized I understood design for restaurants and problem solving with design, which is the biggest. Um, I understood sense of branding and sales. You have to be creative. And even in just numbers in general, which I was never a great math person until I was in the kitchen and I could only really do kitchen math off the top of my head. Whatever you're passionate about, you have to get creative with. And even like taxes, you're like, I got to figure out my time. I got to figure out my creativity. And meanwhile, you have to be creative to the nth degree in the kitchen all the time. And how do you unlock all that creativity all at once under so much pressure? I don't think you have a choice. You just do it or you don't. You really, it's true. I mean, mind you, my family was amazing and supported me. And I had great employees uh, but still, like, you know, when, at the end of the day, it's on your shoulders. And what about becoming an entrepreneur? I think that's so interesting that you join the club. Mm-hmm. Did you know inside of you there was an entrepreneur waiting to bloom? I think I always assumed it was there because I knew I knew that I did not. There's a certain point, I think, at which you're working for people. And it's very easy to see in the restaurant business where you stop doing your best and you don't even realize it. It is a subconscious shift. And for a few jobs, I would be doing amazing. And then I would notice, I'm like, I'm not giving them my best. And I'm trying. It's it's a sign. You know, I remember, you know, I remember feeling that way in Veritas at the very end. I remember feeling that way at Limpera when I stopped my consulting there. I was giving a lot and then it would just sort of die out. And I was like, you know what? You have to work for yourself. And I was already at the top of my game in most of these restaurants. And I was like, I'm going to have to do something and I'm going to have to do something because I was not pastry was beginning to sort of leave my passion zone if you want to call it that and it was really time and also I came from a very long line of entrepreneurs everyone in my family has their own business or started their own business or something like that I want to hear the the story of the food photographer in your family talking about your family and the connection to food and entrepreneurship okay (laughs) that's my dad (laughs) um my dad moved here from Belgium I think 69 or 70 um, he was my stepdad who adopted me. Uh, that's why it's, it's, you know, after me, <laughs> after me being born. Uh, and he moved here, uh, having won, I believe a, um, uh, a contest for Nikon. And that's how he became, you know, he was the accidental photographer, great at it. And when he came here, he was shoot anything and he fell into food just because it was available. Because no one was shooting food at the time. Which, and nobody which wanted it. T- today, you know. it seems crazy, right? Who would want it? First of all, it's all plastic. And um, it yeah. was all advertising. Right. And, you know, back then, who want, it was, you know, it was really like Women's Day. It was Southern Living. It was that sort of thing. There was food and wine and there was gourmet. And, you know, for a while there, and Bon Appetit later, 
you know, I when I was in culinary school, all of a sudden I was like, you know, kind of looking at my dad's portfolio and you've got every cover. And he was like, it was either me or another guy. And if one of us was on vacation, the other one got it. So <laughs> getting the cover was great, but it was not what it is now. And by the time I was in culinary school, it was late, you know, mid, late 80s. So it was... <laughs> I wonder if growing up with him taking pictures of food influenced you in some way, either in the design aesthetic or in the creativity. And, you know, he was somebody who is somebody who does everything, like he'll build his own set. And uh, and that and he was always an entrepreneur because running your own photography studio and now everyone's got an iPhone and everyone's a photographer. But back then you had to have the space and you had to have your own resources to do everything. Everything was hands on. Grew up with a huge you know, dark room in the back of the loft and a prop room. Like we had a prop room, you know, so yeah, it definitely. And he was also, you know, the fact is, is that my dad's European and my mom, you know, grew up in a big Italian family in the Bronx. And if it came, who was going to support me doing this? But a couple of creatives, you know. Right. They certainly understood your vision because it's a vision that they They were very proud, even from the get-go. They were very, very proud. It's good to have that in the family as opposed to, you know, the, the critical voice. You had once said about how there's always something, you know, in your mind, a holdover of something you can't do, someone telling you something, mm-hmm. something no. But That's it seems true. like that voice in your head does not come from your parents. No, not, not, not for those things. No, they were always like, okay, cook it. <laughs> you know, they were always very, very proud. Absolutely. And... So after last, you went and worked at Print, yes. um, which, again, seemed like a restaurant that you enjoyed, but you didn't own it. How hard was it to make that change? You know, it was a great opportunity for me. My my ex-husband is, is was, was until very recently the executive chef there. And for us to open that place, I liked it because it was challenging, because it was really, it was the restaurant. It was also the that amazing roof bar, the press lounge, and... And, of course, all the in-room dining, which was not anything we had done in full before. It was an amazing operation, and we worked very well opening that up. It was also, you know, when I closed Lussie, my daughter was one. And I could have her on me while I was cooking on most nights, which you did, because that's what you do. Um, but she was about to start walking the minute we opened print, and I was like, this is not going to last. And so the owner of that place really let me come and go and as I needed to. I had it up and going. I had an amazing staff. Um, and so, you know, one of us could run the restaurant and then I could, you know, have somewhat normal hours, which I was not accustomed to, to raise, start raising my daughter. What was it like to switch from the insane hours of restaurants uh, to go into somewhat n- more normal and childbearing? <laughs> um, you know, at first it's a relief, and then you panic because you're used to having a certain dynamic all the time. To this day, and I'm completely out of the restaurant business now at like three years, I'm still used to having a lot of people around me all the time. And I just don't have a lot of people around me all the time. What does that feel like? Uh, the panic. The or panic. Every day? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm curious how you deal with the panic more than what that feels like, because the panic feeling, I can imagine. Well, it's like the idea you're just not always busy all the time, and that's really hard. Also, I recently... But what do you do about that? I I find that myself, because um, I'm really busy, but then there's points I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not doing anything. What's wrong? Yeah. um, How do I deal with it? Well, you know, uh, being a medium is still a business, and now there's even more ways of doing business. So for me, I'm constantly on that all the time. And I, having, after I owned Lussie, I really fell in love with business. And I did a lot of consulting the last years before I left food, which went very well, which made me love it more. It made me realize the creativity of business. It made me realize that anything that's really, we learned structurally, kind of doesn't count when you're hands-on. What does that mean? Well, we learn, you know, if you go to business school, there's things that, you know, fall into a certain structure. You do this, you get this, you know, <laughs> you know, profit, blah, 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 right? When you get into the real world, especially in something in food and restaurants, where you're dealing with the slightest different in, in your community, in local government, affects a place like a restaurant. People stop going out to eat pretty quickly when things are iffy. And I learned a lot about that because a year and a half after I opened Lessie, the recession hit, where we had this 
insanely unmatched year and a half of success, suddenly it was like the rest of it was like being on a sinking ship. And then right, you're like, you oh, we're floating, in, and then we're not, and then we're floating, and we're not. You started in 2005, and then the recession in 2008, mm-hmm. so it wasn't a lot of time to get No, going. it wasn't. And, and the fact is, is, if you own a place like a restaurant, you see it coming before anybody else. Like, the recession hit in 2008, but things were already rumbling way before that, which I thought was really, it was an, an amazing to learn. Why do restaurants see it early? Well, I think, first of all, you're always part of a community. If you're brick and mortar, you're definitely part of, like, the immediate community, you, no matter how affluent you are, how formal you have a restaurant, the neighborhood and the things that go on politically kick in first. Also, we still have to deal with immediate cash flow. So if anything even stops, halts, changes. Also, within government, things change greatly on a different level. So suddenly, in the midst, right after I closed Lussie, the ABC system started, oh, the, right, of the health so the code. health code. That changed a lot for everything. And right before that actually kicked in, what the the mayor of New York City at the time was doing was he started to change the the laws. Like even like if a kitchen was a sink was two inches off, suddenly you could get a five hundred dollar fine and for a small restaurant that's devastating. And I was down there all the time. I was like, what is going on? I've been in this same city doing the same work for all these years. What is going on? It did not surprise me that suddenly they changed the system because they wanted to really, they were taking money out of the mom and pop businesses, which is what that is. So we saw it coming way before that. So I always consider it, I'm like, eh, I actually kind of kicked off in 2007 easily. Yeah. So um, after print, you moved and really, well, moved isn't the right word, but you embraced being a medium more full time. Um, right after that, actually, I, I worked as a, an in-house food consultant for Mother Advertising, which was one of the most creative houses, really. Um, I think it was like the second biggest indivi- uh, independently owned uh, advertising house, creative ones like in the world almost. So what did you do for them? Um, they hired me to come in and do a number of things. I did, I did do a lot of cooking. I set up my own kitchen in the basement. But they would also have me come in sort of as you know somebody who had owned businesses and run restaurants to sort of say like would this work and I would say I love that job what a great job (laughs) it wouldn't work and they were like why and I realized I learned I knew so much more again about business than I thought I did I was like you can't push it to that group it's just never gonna happen and one of the I think the best compliments is the head of design at the time Michael Kay said to me we don't always learn what we should do with you, but we always learn what we should not do with you. And I, was like, I took that as a high, high compliment. So at what point in your life did you feel like you had this extra sense and power that comes with being uh, a medium? Always. Always. Like from, like, what's your earliest memory? Oh, really young. I mean, maybe one maybe my earliest memories are six months to one. And I, it wasn't so much, I always say it wasn't so much that I figured out that uh, I had this thing as I realized other people didn't. Because as things come to you, you just assume the rest of the world is like this. And then all of a sudden, they're not, they don't come to the same assumptions. They don't always know ahead of time about things. They, they don't have a certain intuition, because largely, we're raised to not listen to our intuition. We're, 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 you know, born and taught to rate to learn how to pay attention to you know societal norms and they don't always fall into like go by your gut they say go by your gut but don't but don't not listen to what I have to say to you you know (laughs) and so do you actually have a literal memory of I felt this thing that somebody else was thinking like do you have that memory yes what is that memory I, more than anything, I always remember different, like, feeling like I wasn't by myself, ever. And were you an only child? I mean, actually, I am an only child. Um, But mind you, and everyone always brings that up, but I was always, I have a big family. We all lived in the same neighborhood. You know, you grew up in the, you know, my great-grandparents were immigrants. I grew up in the Bronx. Everybody sort of stayed, you know, together. You know, my cousins were a block away. Everybody was around. Um... There was alone time, but I don't think anything more than any other any else from what I can see. Um, but yeah, but I was never by myself. I was never alone, and it wasn't it wasn't 
necessarily imaginary child level, uh, imaginary friend level as a child, but it was definitely like you can feel when somebody else is in a room and you don't see them. And so it was, a, and it's like that. It was a, a human person rather than like an energy field. Yes. And did you? I feel those too, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> and when was the first time you shared that knowledge that you had this feeling with somebody else and who was that with? I remember very clearly um, in one of the first apartments we lived in, which is a neighborhood called Parkchester, uh, that there was somebody else in the apartment. Um, and my mother, and it was a little boy. I still, I still think about that little boy all the time. Um, that morphed for me. My mother was like, oh, it's an imaginary friend, right? And why do you still think but about that But there the were moments, boy? actually, where she felt something in that apartment. Like, and really felt like something had to get away from her, which is fascinating because my mother does not, she doesn't, she doesn't, would never call herself a medium or anything like it, but she definitely has a little extra sense about her. <laughs> Why do you think about the little boy? Because right now people ask me a lot about my first memories. And, yeah. and when I, when I sort of in recent years sort of let myself open up to think about all the things I had been through and really that I was always sort of more in tuned and why I was sort of maybe a more strange kid or, or a little bit odd in certain departments. Uh, were, you comes an, were you an odd, odd kid? Yeah, I was a very odd kid. I heard, I heard voices and, you know, couldn't tell really, how do you tell people that? And when you do, you know, it's a pat on the head and, you know, it was a strange little kid. And did that make you feel unseen? Un, un, yeah, not I was always odd. You know, I was always a strange kid, you know. But how did you <laughs> deal okay. with that? Were you like, okay, I don't care. I'm odd and I like it. Or what did that really, was that painful? I think it was painful. For me, it was painful. Um, you know, in some ways it was great because, you know, you, you find your people, you find your friends. I was never short of friends and I was never short of family. Um, you know, however your friends and family are. That's in a whole other story, but I always had it. I always had people that, you know, I had a grandmother I was extremely close to. I had cousins that were always around me. There was never, um, I would say there was never a lack of love as, as much as strange as one you may feel, you know. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a big difference between knowing something about yourself and not being able to really put a finger on it, but knowing that you're different and not having any love. That's that's a whole other thing. But no, I would say I had, you know, I, I had people around me that loved me and that also believed in this kind of thing so that I did not know exactly what it was about myself. My grandmother, my mother, other family members were very into this sort of thing. That's so. And how did you find that out? Um, well, my mother would come home and be like, I went to go see a psychic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and she said this and she said this or, you know. I had this aunt who was a great-great-aunt who I did not know. I think it was an aunt of my grandmother's. It was like a great-great-aunt. Aunt Sitsi. And she would do this thing. They always talked about Aunt Sitsi and her three-legged table. And the table would move or do something. I don't know what it was. All I knew is that the women from the neighborhood would come to see her and ask her questions. And she would always know things. And then the priest came one day and asked her to shut it down <laughs> because it wasn't really coherent to the church. Uh, and then years later, recently, I read about this sort of, in the Times, there was an article about like camp for psychics or something like that. Of course, everybody sends me that kind of stuff. And there was a woman with a three-legged table, and apparently it's a thing. And I'm trying to find this article again so I could remember it. So if anybody out there wants to email me anything about the work with a three-legged table, but that's what it was. That was what my what famous Aunt Sitsi did. So not only do you have a family of entrepreneurs... Uh, you have a family that actually believes in sort of connection to the Oh, very much world. so. Very much so, yeah. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about um, the connection between spirits and hospitality and also what you see and how you think. So stay with us. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, 
a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show until the end of March 2019. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Make sure you check out Chow while you still can. The exhibition closes at the end of March 2019. Check out MoFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org events. Listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. And my guest today is none other than Heather Carlucci, who I knew for such a long time as a very talented pastry chef, then a restaurant owner. And I bumped into her at Pondicherry, which is a great Indian restaurant that uh, we both admire. And Anita Rosanjani was on the show with her daughter Ajna uh, last week. And I'm so delighted to have. Heather with me here today. I am somebody who inherently does believe in psychics, and I know that there are people out there who do not believe in psychics, right? They're the, um, the skeptics and people who say, well, when you were growing up, you're saying people thought you were odd. Um, a worse <laughs> version is probably that you're crazy. And I'm curious, what do you, and I've just admitted that I fall on the, oh my gosh, I want to know everything that you see and hear, but what do you say to the doubters? Well, if somebody, you know, I have a lot of people who know me not as this, but as a chef or whatever, and, you know, say, I want to go, I kind of want to do a reading with you, but I don't believe in it. And I always tell them, the only, the only thing that matters is that I do. <laughs> and do they follow through? Many of them do. Many of them do. I will say that the people who have reached out to me, who have just seen my posts on Facebook and how I kind of announced this, uh, who have reached out to me for readings are very surprising. People I would not have thought. In what in what direction? Like they're very, they seem rigid or um, just. I would say the people that you would not really think either believe in it or never did. Um, being a medical intuitive opens up the avenues a lot more for a lot of people to come in. Largely because I think we're all, especially like the group of chefs that I came up, we're all getting to a certain age. And, you know, mortality is scary and they're seeing things and they want answers that maybe they're afraid to go to a doctor, but they don't mind sitting in a room with me being myself. <laughs> and can you just explain what being a medical intuitive is? When I discovered you were one, I had to Google it. So. Okay. Um, much like my sort of psychic gifts, um, I have always been able to see whatever problems people have physically. So a lot of times I'll work with doctors, obviously more open-minded doctors, uh, to, you know, uh, when they have a diagnosis they can't quite grasp. And I can kind of, I can either tell them what it is or lead them to where they need to go. And do you need to know more than what your mind tells you to be able to do this? Uh, no. In other words, I like do take it upon myself to do some education on that um, because I like to have the language. Although many times the things I hear are words that I don't know, and I just will repeat them to the doctor. And they were like, that is, that's what I was that is an organ, or that is a disease, or that is an ailment of some kind. That's always, I'm always fascinated by that. Like my medical work. I'm blown away by all of this stuff. It's not like I surprise myself and I, I'm still amazed by other mediums and psychics that do really fine work. But um, the do medical you, is what blows me away. Yeah. And I've read you on the topic of there's a bunch of celebrities and there's a bunch of crap out there also in the um, psychic world, right? Yes. You have to you have to be very particular in medical things, in psychics, like how do you, um, how did you find the community that you're now a part of? With, of other mediums? Yeah. 
it just sort of comes to you, you know, much like any other community. You sort of find, you know, like, you know, even in the chef world, you find people that are just in it because of whatever. And now even more, because when we started, unless you really like the daily grind <laughs> and the ick of it, you were never going to last in it because we didn't have social media. We didn't have celebrity. It was not glamorous at the time. And even then, you find, you find your people that are authentic. It just it sort of comes to you, really. And do you, just making that the comparison between the, the two communities, do you find that um, there is a connection that between hospitality and being psychic and that you use those skills in thinking about what you'd like to feed someone, a dish you'd like to create, you know, thinking about somebody's happiness on the other side of it? Yes. I will say, um, you know, there's a woman named Carolyn Elliott who writes about business and making money and doing this sort of work, which has been amazing. And she's a very creative writer. That being said, she talks about something that, that a really good light worker, which is sort of the, the blanket term for psychics, mediums, readers, true ones, give to somebody even more than information. Um, and that's the gift of divine attention. When I read somebody, um, also when it's over the reading, by the way, I don't remember most of what I've said. But when I am with somebody, the attention is so intense. Um, it is all about them. It's not about anything else. I really, you have to check your life at the door. You have to check your, your opinions at the door. And really, most importantly, you have to check your ego at the door. And I believe, and I have this conversation, I have a couple of friends who we like to talk business a lot, and they're in very different, one's in fitness, the fitness business world, and other one's in food. And one of the things that, especially when I was at Lussie, because I was out front in the dining room a lot more, having that attention, remembering a name, is everything. Even if you saw them in the corner of your eye, and they see me walking through back to the kitchen, and I used to just raise my hand as a hello and be like, welcome back. And they didn't even realize that I saw them in the first place. And at Lussie, it was so tiny. And I always had a chef jacket on. And I was usually the only one who did because it was so <laughs> tiny that everyone knew. And also at the time, we had a lot of press. Everyone knew who I was. It made such an enormous difference. And I think that is very much a part of it. It's why people have a thing about their bartender. It's why people have a thing about their hairdresser. That person is focused on you. Even if they, if they can make that connection it is everything and that's what hospitality is and actually I think that's one of the reasons why when we really shifted about I want to say it was about 10-15 years ago and not to put anything against the people who do more casual restaurants that are now getting higher stars but when that happened it broke my heart a little bit because the experience was never that concentrated because it was never in more fine dining the true heart of real fine dining is not to be affluent, but it's, it's when you go in, the waiter is part of the experience. The wait, you know, the wait staff is there and you are part, you're part of the show. And it is that kind of attention. And yet with these louder, more casual restaurants, you lose that. It is about energy, which is amazing, and it is definitely like a great, it's a rush, but we lose that sort of being taken care of and safety, and that's what that sort of attention, and that's what real hospitality is. It's a sense of feeling safe and being paid attention to. And so that's, that's sort of the feeling that is the connection between the two worlds that you have inhabited and do inhabit. Mm -hmm. Is there anything about um, the creation of the food itself because of course food can feed the soul I mean it could food can be for health food can be for pleasure food can be for so many things yes um I don't know for me I will say um you know I left food because the passion was dying and you can't do it at that level also like my ankles are a wreck because I've been standing my right shoulder because of repetitive work for 30 years isn't great um and I didn't have the energy for that anymore. And that, you know, I was like, if I don't get out, I'm going to be bitter and brokenhearted. And nobody wants that. I think that the only connection for me personally is that 
I am as passionate about this work and the validity of it and its actual attachment to real science as I was about food in the best of times. And now, don't get me wrong. I can most of my most of my friendship circles are all are all chefs. All of our chefs of a certain age, you know, we're all in touch or we're friends, still friends. We hang out all the time. We do things together. Um, and when I am in that moment, and if I sit down and have a great plate of food, like I am, you know, I everything else around me is blacked out. <laughs> it's all about that moment. But that that's the only thing together that really that is together for me. I will say that there's no there's no strange attachment about it, except that I'm passionate about one as I was at the other. And when you when you walk into a, a room, as you walk about in your everyday life, do you feel energies around you and need to close yourself off? Like I just Im- imagine that as a light worker, mm-hmm. you're very porous. I am. Uh, there are days that being on the subway is not a great idea. Uh, I do have to close it down. I do, and and. As, as a friend of mine told me, right when he was very experienced at all of this, a very gifted medium, said to me, you know, it's like a muscle. And the more you use it, the better you get at it. Um, and now it's like it comes on like that all the time. Um, that being said, I do have to shut down. I do have to be careful. Um, if I, you know, if I let myself go a little too much in a very busy concert, it's exhausting for me, and I don't really realize it. Like, I've, I've hit the, you know, and a lot of energy is a lot of energy for anybody. And we, we are sort of, like, meant to just, we throw ourselves into it. But it's always harsh at the best of moments. It's exhausting. For me, I, gotta, I have to be careful. And so do you walk into a place like this and you get energy? Well, so right now we're at Roberta's, and we're in a shipping container <laughs> that, I don't know, it could have had, like, cows that went to slaughter, um, or it could have had grain, or it could have been widgets. But do you walk into a like a place and then it just comes upon you it's history it's present it's future yes unless I'm supposed to be getting it from the person in front of me and then or anywhere around me um I mean the energy shifted a lot for me because as we're sitting in front of this big window it went from an empty dining room to a full dining room um and that could really be for anybody I think I assume everyone gets that feeling um but as there was somebody who actually walked in and sat down in the dining room and like I had to when we took a break I have I had to ask it to shut off because I keep reading that person wow yeah <laughs> and it's really it's not me reading it so much as like somebody wants me to sort of hear something interesting do, yeah. you, do I want you to hear something um yeah uh, you have some health things that are sort of bothering <laughs> A little bit, if you need to know. Um, I'm a little concerned about your esophageal situation. Um, gut up into esophagus. I want you to be careful of that, um, especially coming up. Your stresses sort of sit right above your gut sometimes. Um, cool. Yeah, um, which actually just a couple minutes ago, if you noticed, I was sort of like, I wasn't burping, but I was sort of like suddenly uncomfortable. It was from that. Wow. So we'll get to that later. I'll tell you what actually what's going on. Great. You may not want me to tell blabbing everybody. it on the radio <laughs> network. What's wrong with you at the moment? You know what, but um, it's nothing I have great concern over. I just you, you have certain sensitivities you do need to be careful of. I like that. I mean, I don't like that. And be like, careful of your lower back. But in that, we're fine. Because <laughs> um, one of the things on the show, you know, I, I ask people themselves to be very vulnerable all the time, mm-hmm. right? And to tell me things that are real. And so it's sort of interesting, you know, to make oneself vulnerable. So now that we know I have esophageal issues. Um, We'll discuss those later. Um, And so in terms of um, how you put yourself out in the world, you're you're still doing some things that involve food. So for example, you're doing something with City Harvest and you still do a lot of charitable work. Um, Um, Yeah, when when, when I'm asked, I'll, I'll throw it into the hat. I mean, the City Harvest thing was somebody just wanted to do a cocktail party with, you know, like a small psychic fair in a beautiful home, maybe 50 people. So I'll be doing that March 8th. Um, you can get tickets on my website. Um, and that goes all to City Harvest. I always have done charitable and I've always been an activist, even sort of precursor to the trend at the moment, um, which is the best trend that could ever happen, by the way. Um, and is there an intersection between the activism, your sort of thoughts about the world and the light work that you do? Like, do those connect somehow? Oh, yeah. I mean, other than people asking me predictions all the time about the world. Um, What's your prediction about the world? 
<laughs> I mean, as long as they ask, I'm Can just going to take that. Can we get a little bit that. more specific? <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think really about, first of all, the, the joint between the two. I'll answer that question first. Um, you know, I think I think being empathetic, you know, which it was a big part for me. Like you can just, you know, if you feel energy, you can just sort of feel where there are issues and where there are problems and what's going to come up. And somebody said to me recently, you know, it's funny, I've known you for all 30 years in the food business, and you would always bring up things that ended up getting really big five to 10 years later. Like you knew it was like, it was nothing you do by yourself, but you know, it was sort of this, and I was like, I never really realized it. But like, there's, did they give you examples? Like, um, yeah, like I think in um, in 1990 or 1989, we were talking about, I was like, somebody should do something with ramen, uh, wow. you know, which at the time, nobody was really thinking about noodles. We were not a noodle nation <laughs> at the time. And then, and then there was a whole thing with espresso bars that we were talking about. Um, and, you know, just, and I never really thought about it because I, you know, when you're sitting in a bunch of, a room of a bunch of cooks, especially young cooks, I'm not even going to use the word chef, but young cooks, uh, you know, you sit around and talk about ideas and you throw things around and you fall in love with a loaf of bread and you're like, oh my God, we have to open up bread places, you know, and we have those moments, you know, where suddenly everything is the greatest idea in the world because of a green bean, <laughs> which is one of the things I loved more than anything about being, in, in, I love about that world in general, like the excitement over a trout is unbelievable. <laughs> what do you see in the future of food now? In the future of food now? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, are you asking me to read? Are you asking me to <laughs> take your pick? It's up to you. I don't, I don't, I don't want to tax you, but I'm I, curious. I, you know, honestly, um, it's so, in many ways, even having been in it for so long, it started getting foreign to me before I left because the shift is so big. I still look at it now and I'm, I, I'm like, I don't, I don't as, an entre- in a, as an entrepreneurial mind, What's going on as food businesses is sort of is blowing me away. Um, in what way? Uh, in, in good and bad ways. Um, the fact that it's still going is mind blowing because we're no longer supported as mom and pop businesses. People don't realize that they really are opening on a wing and a prayer. It used to be sort of be a given, you know, even when I was a kid and, you know, you look at restaurants like in the neighborhood. I, I grew up right outside of like Arthur Avenue and going there as a kid. And those restaurants, you open a restaurant and it became a business and you just kind of knew it'd be around for a long time. It was never a up and down kind of thing. You put your kids through college on it. You you know, you supported the neighborhood. People worked for you forever. And that, that community and that society is kind of gone right now. And the way people invest their money in restaurants when they open them is now very different. You would never do something without really creating a foundation and then going on to the next one. And now people are paying themselves like a huge salary and there's no foundation and there's constant movement. And if it doesn't do well, you just close it up and and that. So I'm really unsure about what I never really, you know what, I should do this after the show. I should really sort of sit down and try to read the restaurant business because I've never really done that before. <gasps> that would be great kind idea. of interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, we always, everyone always asks for predictions about what's going to go on in the world. But um, like I get asked questions about the like, Mueller report all the time. <laughs> I was like, that's never and we have and we have Michael Cohen today. So. Oh, do you? <laughs> I mean, not, we, but the the world is going to be. Have that's right. Oh, that's right. We do. Yeah, Michael yeah. We, oh, yeah. Today is the day, right? Yeah. Um, I thought maybe you you got him on here. <laughs> I was like, what? No. Um, but uh, yeah, today's that day. Um, among other things, but you know, there's never going to be a big crack in that glacier. I will tell you that much. I'm just I'm very disappointed to hear that. I know, me too. Um, I mean, we'll think it is, but it's it's bigger and deeper than we than we assume. And it's when I when I see things on television, I'm always amazed because I'm like, I can't believe anybody's actually trusting what they hear on television anymore. Well, I think that's a, a global problem at every level. Yeah, right? on it's every not- level. Like people are like, Well, I heard it on TV and I'm like, Haven't you figured out that's not the <laughs> That's not the way to get any information. Podcasting, however, is the best way to get. This um, is the real deal. This is the real deal. It is really the real deal. Uh, so when you cook for yourself now, do you cook still? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. I've. It took a long time to figure out how to enjoy cooking at home again. 
how did you do that? That seems like a big transition. It is a big transition. Uh, you know, like you do it and then you kind of don't. I mean, I have a daughter, so there has to be cooking involved. <laughs> and recently, I've really been back to baking again, which has been really fun. So that's going way back to pastry and really, really enjoying it, not just doing it because, you know... I have to show up for my daughter's, you know, fifth grade class. But, <laughs> bake sale. But literally, like, yeah, because I go all out for that. Um, Ooh, what do you make for bake sale? Well, not necessarily what it is, but, like, the decorating part. The pastry chef fully comes out. You know, like, the Aladdin theme was big. <laughs> I, I hope like that, that yourself are more than, you know, the casual uh, sugar cookies. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, I go all out, you know. <laughs> she's a little bitter about the fact that I left pastry before she was born, and everyone's like, don't you know who your mother is? And she's like, shut up. <laughs> I do, and I, I never know, get what? anything out of it. <laughs> and um, at the end of the show, I always ask my guests to pay it forward to a woman in the hospitality who they think um, is under-recognized and deserves a shout out oh my goodness let me there's so many there are so so many um you know what i'm going to give it to my friend um tamara reynolds fantastic yeah she's amazing and she still does one of like the best underground restaurants sunday dinners I mean, out of her home, she is catering like nobody's business. Actually, I do a group reading. I just realized I do a group reading um, every month, and you can buy tickets and come. And we're going to be sort of doubling that ticket price, and she's going to be doing dinner, and I'm going to be doing the reading. Um, when is and that, and how can people find that it? That is, sounds like so much I'm, fun. Actually, we just decided like 40 minutes before I walked in here. That must so be why. it's going to be, I think it's April 8th, um, but it will be on my website. And I will announce it, of course, on Instagram, Heather Carlucci Medium. Uh, but she's amazing. You know, she's been on the Cooking Channel and she's been on Food Network. And um, I got to say, she does not get nearly enough credit as she should. And she's got brilliant ideas. And I don't know why she isn't all over the media. So people jump in there and grab her because the amount of energy and talent that comes out of that woman just blows me away all the time. So she is one of a lot of women I could I could talk about. But thank you for bringing um sure. She's I haven't seen her in quite a long time, but she's amazing, and I'm so excited to hear that the catering is going so well, and that the um and that you'll do something together, which is fabulous. Oh yeah, I'm really excited about that one. That was her idea. So um, that concludes this episode of Speaking Broadly. Heather, thank you so much for coming on. Um, Matt, thank you for engineering with joy. And Nina for joining uh, here today. And all of you listening, I hope you uh, enjoyed this episode. If you do, go to iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe. Um, definitely come back next week um, and for some more inspiration, life lessons from women who have profound and different journeys to success. Have a great week. Listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.